0: Hello listeners, we invite you to sharpen your swords and your minds and join hosts Sam and Clay each week as they delve into the historical context, leadership, and tactics surrounding significant battles and campaigns throughout time. Welcome Welcome to to the the Art of War. Actually, first, first, I would like to preface the podcast by saying I have a sleeping dog next to me. So if you hear little doggy snores, that's what that is. Welcome back, everybody. My name's Sam. And I'm Clay. And this is The Art of War. And today we're going to be talking about the fall/slash siege of Constantinople of 1453.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So today we're covering, before we leave this whole medieval era and go on to somewhere new, we're going to just cover the siege of Constantinople because it's one of Sam's favorite points of history so we're going over it but there's really a lot to get into so it's going to be a two-part this time so we're going to cover part one today and yeah i just thought it was important that we talked about this
0: because it was so core to the overall story of the ottoman-hungarian conflict it's just such a integral part of the history of how that conflict occurred because the ottoman empire was very interested in taking hungary and, and europe and they needed to take mm-hmm. constantinople first to realize that right and so let's let's go back let's go back to the battle of varna right so we've got we've got vladislav the third we've got john hunadi and we've got murad the second right so murad the second has come back from his retirement he's taken the throne from mehmed II, second his son who's about nine ten at the time who's not capable of leading an army and he defeats decisively the Hungarian forces, the Hungarian crusade at the Battle of Varna. Mm-hmm. And now uh, the Ottomans have complete control of Wallachia and Bohemian Transylvania, and they're able to really uh, not worry about Hungary as much because they push so far into the Hungarian territories. So Murad goes back, he's planning his retirement like he's done before to give back the throne to his son. But before then, he makes sure that he's consolidated his power. He goes and he quells rebellions in the East. He goes after some mm-hmm. some Asian countries that are trying to push on the borders of, of the Ottoman Empire. And he also, he starts a bunch of uh, peace negotiations right. and, and deliberations with Venice and Hungary themselves and Poland. And he gets peace treaties for an extended period of time so that he's able to really make uh, the Ottoman Empire even stronger than they were before. He starts setting up trade networks, and he starts ensuring that the empire he's going to give to his son is one of the strongest Ottoman empires that's ever existed. And he eventually dies, and his son takes the throne for the second time, and he's only about eighteen, nineteen at this time, and his aspirations are very large, which not a lot of people expected, because he had been in power kind of for the previous years, but he's been deposed and and he didn't really do much when he had control. That was mostly because he was young. But, but the European state and the Ottoman state, they both believe that there's going to be a lull. There's going to be a little period of peace. And he has a completely different uh, opinion of what's going to happen. He's, he's got big aspirations
1: right right like maybe the ottoman empire is just gonna stop conquesting for a little bit and he's just gonna get the his ground underneath his feet and learn how to manage such a massive empire because constantinople has been this you know fortress that the ottomans have wanted to conquer for a really long time Um, mehmed's father Murad the second who just you know recently passed away he tried conquering constantinople in 1422 but had to lift his siege to go handle some rebellions elsewhere in the empire. So he failed at it. And Mehmed wants to, you know, best his father in that and be the one, the sultan that conquered Constantinople. And that's, you know, such a huge milestone for him. And so that's what he's really looking to do. But so we also probably should go back farther in time now and just talk about why Constantinople is such a powerful fortress and so hard to get through.
0: Yeah, no it's it's incredible. I think if you were to look at cities and fortifications in ancient history, Constantinople is by far one of the most heavily fortified. It's just incredible how how well defended it was. The location they picked, the fortifications they built, it's just all built to be in, you know, like insurmountable. There's no way you could take it at least in ancient times, mm-hmm. right? And that is all because Constantine who was the first, uh, the first, I guess you could say, Byzantine leader. He was a Roman leader, but it was the transitional period from the Roman Empire to the Byzantine Empire. And he is, was the first Constantine, and he's the one that creates Constantinople. And when he creates it, he picks it on this little inlet so that it's got water on almost all sides of it. It's only got one part of it that has a, a land wall. Right. The rest are sea walls. And he builds a complete wall that's almost five miles long six six and a half kilometers surrounding the entire city right right? yeah
1: they're called the theodosian walls
0: yeah yeah and they they're about 12 meters tall which is like 20 feet they're five meters thick and you think wow that's pretty impressive in itself but he also put towers every 10 to 20 meters uh on the walls that could defend you know a break or a fracture in the wall and then that would be like, wow, that's impressive. That's a huge wall. But then in the 5th century, right, uh, another Constantine builds a second wall, yes. uh, an interior wall, the same length, or a little, I guess a little bit shorter because it's the interior wall, and it has a moat.
1: Right, and this, the moat's pretty cool, right? The moat's like 20 meters wide, it's 7 feet deep, but mm-hmm. it has pipes that feed into it from the city and then from these pipes they can flood the moat so it's not full of water all the time it's empty and then when there's a siege or an attack they flood the moat with water
0: yeah and then the the area between the two walls which they called the killing field rightfully Mm -hmm. named uh it was slightly slanted so that it would be difficult for horses to to mount it would also be difficult for troops to come up because if there could be potentially rubble from the first wall, it was just the whole whole fortification of Constantinople was made for the sole reason to make it impossible to siege. And it worked for the longest time, you know, it, for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It had been attempted to be conquered 33 times, mm-hmm. and it only had ever worked twice, right? So that's just crazy to think about. And it's because of those yeah. walls. And then, oh, tell, tell us what, what was in the, in the Golden Horn or the...
1: Right, whatever. yeah, so as Sam was talking about... Constantinople is situated on this peninsula and then it has this golden horn which is that's the name of it but it's this horn-shaped harbor that goes basically into the city of Constantinople and you know pretty early on they realized that this was the major weakness of the cities if a naval force could get through this area and lay siege to Constantinople they couldn't get supplies and that was pretty bad so what they did is they recognize this weakness, and the solution was just to construct a really big chain, which, you know, at the time, these are called booms, and it's basically very, very thick iron chains that you link across this entire opening into the golden horn, and so there's two towers on each side of the waterway, and this 750-meter-long giant chain that's usually, you know, loose and laying on the the floor of the the water and then if enemy ships are coming they pull it taunt to where ships can't get by and the chain would just destroy any ship that tries to sail through it
0: yeah and there's been many renditions of this in in like contemporary media where you've seen like game of thrones and in, in other movies and tv shows where they make a chain and it's actually you know it's not done, been done very many times it's, it's it's applied in some situations but this is probably one of the most relevant examples of it because it actually has a huge impact on the the coming siege and it's it's probably one of the more effective fortification tools they have at their disposal because like clay said this is their their big weak point and it completely just this one chain completely stops the potential for a naval blockade of their harbor and it's pretty it's pretty Mm -hmm. pretty smart and clever i don't remember exactly when it was constructed i believe it was constructed in the fifth century along with the second wall but
1: the, right, I, I think so, which is kind of crazy what you think about. Like, most of these defenses were built pretty much a thousand years prior to the siege I'm yeah. talking about, yeah. and they weren't really upgraded that much because they were so effective. I mean, when you think about this chain, some of the historians say single links, like just not the entire chain, but one link of it could weigh more than a ton. Oh, yeah, that's just kind of crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah, they was it was gargantuan, and also they built an entire. A fortified tower called the Tower of Galata, which sat on the opposite side of the the harbor, and it was extremely well fortified. It was just a singular towel tower that was used to hold the the chain and be able to be able to raise mm-hmm. it. And it had the same sized walls surrounding it as as Constantinople. They really took the fortification seriously. They they yeah. did.
1: Yeah. And I guess the last fortification piece I want to talk about is of course the Golden Gate, which is these two giant bronze doors with towers on either side that basically leads to constantinople's main street and it has a triple archway and it's built into the theodosian walls at the southern point of the city and it's a pretty at the time was an architectural marvel and still kind of is it was very sturdy and impenetrable, and it had you know basically the same fortification as the rest of the city
0: yeah and so, you know, you looking at all these these amazing feats, these architectural wonders that Constantinople Constantinople has, you think, okay, the Byzantine Empire, they were they were big players, you know, they mm-hmm. had a lot of money, they had a lot of power. But actually, at this time, at least in the past they did, but at this time, the Byzantine Empire wasn't really an empire. It was just Constantinople. It yeah. Constantinople was the capital, but it was also their main main city their, their their whole province right, right. they didn't have many periphery territories because the ottomans who for the past hundreds of years have been pushing into hungary wallachia bohemia they've been taking all the periphery areas but they don't mm-hmm. dare try to take constantinople unless they're like super super ready to do it so you know constantinople is the byzantine empire
1: right. yeah but so not only did they have the ottomans capturing a lot of their lands, they're also at odds with the rest of the Christian nations, mainly with the Western Roman Empire. And so in the 1200s, there's a fourth crusade that's launched, and it's formed by the Venetian Empire. And so the point of this crusade that was sanctioned by the Pope at the time was to take back Jerusalem. But unfortunately, and it's not really understood why from what I was reading, this crusade force ended up turning on Constantinople because they, at the time, most of the Christian nations viewed the Byzantine empire kind of like a, um, the odd, the lame duck or something like that, like a, a Christian nation that wasn't really have, didn't have the beliefs of the rest of Christianity and didn't really heed to the Vatican or the Pope's rule. So they didn't really like the Byzantine empire that much. And so this crusader force that was originally formed to take back the Holy land of Jerusalem goes to Constantinople and sieges Constantinople and it's the only successful siege at the time because apparently a gate was let open and the impenetrable defenses so this whole crusader force stormed Constantinople sacking it and this greatly hurt the Byzantine Empire because after this they reached like a treaty but the Byzantine Empire lost a bunch of its territory To Venetia and other Christian nations because of this attack.
0: Yeah, and I mean, one of the things that's attributed to that is that there was a rift in the like I think it's a thousand, thousand fifty or thousand fifty four somewhere around there. There was a rift in the the Catholic Church where there was a an Eastern Church and a Western Church where there Mm -hmm. was Orthodox Catholicism and then there was Latin uh, Catholicism and the Constantinople, which is far east, they were siding with the Eastern the Eastern Church and that kind of created a there was an excommunication for a period of time where constantinople and constantine and all the the entirety of the byzantine empire were excommunicated from from the vatican and the the holy roman empire in the west right and that that probably could be contributed to it but yeah it's kind of it's kind of a weird a weird story i think i remember hearing somewhere that the reason that they sacked constantinople was that uh they had they don't they didn't have an intent to or they didn't have the ability to really take Jerusalem so they just turn on what was closest and <laughs> was the most profitable which was Constantinople
1: I also was reading that there's um possibly one of the reasons was that the the Venetian empire at the time was really trying to become the major naval trade mm-hmm. empire in Europe and control a lot of the trade routes and Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire is situated such that it really is yeah. key to trade and so by by kind of cutting down the Byzantine Empire's power, the Venice was able to gain a lot more of the trade power itself.
0: Yeah, I guess we should probably include this because it's kind of important, too. It, it, another reason why the Ottomans in, in most countries wanted to take Constantinople, and the reason that Constantinople was so heavily fortified, is that it sits in the perfect position— to let in people from Asia into Europe or people from Europe into Asia. It's modern day mm-hmm. Turkey. So it's kind of like the channel straight between those two, or two areas of the world. And so right. it's very important for the Ottomans, if they wanted to realize their dreams of taking over all of Europe and becoming this grand empire to rival the Roman empire, they have to take Constantinople because they would be such a thorn in their backside because every single time they're mounting these these invasions, they're having to go past Constantinople. Of course, they're not really at war, but it, logistically, it's really difficult to transport troops that long distance when you could have just taken Constantinople and sent your troops from Constantinople, right? Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, that's that's an important reason, too. That
1: Yeah. So, yeah, it is interesting because we have had this one ch- super powerful Byzantine Empire that's now, a, you know, kind of a shell of what it formerly used to be. Pretty similar, in instance, to what Hungary became, you know, in the later part of the Ottoman-Hungary Wars, which Hungary had so much power, and then it became basically a shell of what it used to be. So it's almost like a parallel here. But so Mehmed II has his eyes set on Constantinople, but, you know, he has these fortifications that are just the hugest roadblock to him. So he has to figure out how he's going to get through the Theodosian walls and how he's going to manage... The great chain of the golden horn
0: yeah and you know also i, I was reading about this, this is pretty interesting too he for a while he was considering uh if he should invade in, into those in the byzantine empire and if he should take constantinople and one of the biggest driving factors and why he finally decided to do it was that there's this interesting concept that the ottomans used to do with constantinople was when a new sultan would take power and there was uh, a rival entity like a cousin or or a grandson or someone that could potentially pose a threat to the throne cause a civil war and maybe usurp the, the current king they would take those guys the, those those political rivals and they would send them to constantinople right <laughs> and they would say here's a hostage we will pay you to keep him there right because they didn't want to kill him because yeah. that could also create a civil war so they would send him to constantinople And in this instance, there was a guy named Orhan, who was a distant cousin of Mehmed II. And after Murad had uh, defeated the Hungarians in Varna, and he knew that this was probably the last time he was going to be the sultan, he wanted to ensure that his son was still going to be in power when he died, right? So he sent Mm -hmm. this guy Orhan to Constantinople. So every single year, the Ottomans would pay... The, uh, the Byzantines uh, a large sum of money to make sure that he never got out of Constantinople and come you know, come back and launch a civil war and right when Mehmed takes the throne uh, for the second time the, uh, the leader of the Byzantine Empire, Constantine XI, sends a note to the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire who Mehmed didn't like. He didn't send it, he didn't address it to Mehmed, he addressed it to the Grand Vizier and he basically mm-hmm. said, give us more money or we're releasing orhan and and mehmed was like all right i already hate this grand visor guy you're you're addressing it to him not me how dare you and you're asking for more money and you're trying to threaten my control and that was kind of the nail in the coffin so that's you know that's where all it all s- kind of stirs up and goes to a, a breaking point and decides he's actually going to take Constantinople.
1: right but he does it you know very it's not just kind of like a he gets angry Builds an army and goes. Well, Mehmed II's fair kill for planning the siege. So first he gets a Hungarian engineer whose name is Orban. And, you know, he's a Hungarian, but apparently the Ottoman Empire paid pretty well. So Orban was well compensated for his work. And so Mehmed II tasks this engineer to develop a cannon powerful enough to take down the Constantinople walls. And that's exactly what Orban does. The cannon, the, the final cannon he makes is they they have a bunch of cannons, but the main one is twenty-seven feet long and it's able to shoot a fifteen hundred pound yeah. stone ball. So this is just kind of a massive cannon. We posted a picture of a similar one on our Instagram a couple of weeks ago. But so this is, you know, one of the first steps that he takes. And then Mehmed II realizes the importance of having a naval fleet. And from what I was reading, he dedicated a lot of his resources and even his own personal time to overseeing the construction of really the first naval fleet for the Ottoman Empire. And and the same thing by hiring the Hungarian engineer Orban, he hires a lot of Greek and Italian shipmakers there to build this Ottoman Navy. And so they build a lot of war galleys. And the advantage of war galleys is that they're very, you know, the maneuverability is, is very quick with them, and their speed is decent but they do have a lot of setbacks, especially because they built this entire Navy in the matter of months. And the disadvantages are they're, they're smaller than you know traditional Venetian merchant ships, something like that. They're pretty cramped. The rowers are exposed on the deck. And it's actually probably the, the worst disadvantage is that it sits very low in the water. So it's prone to taking on water and can't really travel far distances, but they don't really need it to. They just need it for the siege. And so in the end... Their navy, they amass, you know, over 130 ships, which is pretty crazy for the time and for how much time they had. And they had, you know, about a few, like a dozen pretty well-sized war vessels and then about 100 other small, smaller war vessels. But yeah, so Mehmed II really spends a lot of resources and time preparing for the siege.
0: Yeah, and and, and funnily enough, I, I thought this was pretty, pretty hilarious Uh, Orvon. uh, He's of either Hungarian or German descent. There's not a lot of information on him, but one of the things that they talk about a lot is that he went to Constantinople first. He went to the Byzantine Empire first and he, he asked uh, for a huge sum of money, like a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah. Who knows what it actually was, but it was so much that the Byzantine Mm -hmm. Empire just like laughed at him and told him to go away. But he went to the Byzantines first to offer his services to construct cannons But the Byzantines being, you know, not the shell, like you said, of the empire they were before, they couldn't afford him. So he just went straight over to the Ottomans and was like, yo, I'll build you the same cannon. They were like, sure, bro, we'll pay you. They paid him and he built this gargantuan cannon called the Basilica that there's still, I think there's still actually a, uh, at least a portion of it that you can see in in Istanbul. And it's, it's amazing. It's just like crazy how big it is.
1: Is really big. I think it was also at, like, a museum in London for a while, one of them. But, uh, yeah. And do you also, do you want to talk about the the castle that Mehmed II oh, yeah. built?
0: Yeah, for sure. You, you talked about it. You love your—what uh, was it? You say it. I can't pronounce it. I call it Rumeli Asani. Oh, man. You gotta give it the real name.
1: Buja Castle? Yeah. But the the nickname—so, before the siege, Mehmed II also builds the Buja Kezin Castle— and its nickname is Throat Cutter. or It's actually kind of the translation for what it is. And he builds this in 1442, so pretty much a year before he launches the, um, the siege. And so it's built on the Bosphorus Strait, which is right where Constantinople is situated. And it's heavily armed to aid in the naval blockade of Constantinople. So they basically built this entire castle to cut off the throat of Constantinople, so they can't get any relief ships from the Vatican or from their allies.
0: Yeah, and actually, uh, funnily enough, his great great grand or no, his great grandfather uh, Bayezid the First, he constructed a similar tower, pretty much the exact same on the uh, western portion of the strait. So the Rumeli Husari, which Mehmed built, on the the eastern portion next to where the uh, tower of galata is and his great-grandfather mm-hmm. built a tower called the abu Delhi abu Delhi hasari i think it is which translates <laughs> to like the cutoff and Rumuli hasari translates to the throat cutter so now he's got he's got a firm grip on both sides of the straight so he's ensuring that the only way they're going to be able to really get resources is through the Golden Horn and the river that flows through right. the Golden Horn. Because other than that, that he's got complete control of, of the, the coast and the, the ocean.
1: But so Emperor Constantine XI at the time, you know, he knows that the Ottoman Empire and then the Second is preparing for the siege. Like they, it's not a secret, right? Mm-hmm. The Ottoman Empire has put out so many resources, so... He knows, Constantine XI knows that the Ottomans are going to try to take Constantinople, and so he, you know, doesn't have the finances that the Ottoman has, or that the old Byzantine Empire has, but he tries to seek out aid from other Christian nations, and how does that go?
0: Yeah, well, like Clay said prior, the the big riff in the Catholic Church kind of makes the entirety of Western Europe just ignore what... His police for help because they kind of fall under the control of the Vatican, at least militarily wise, if there's, a, you know, a need or a, a some assistance required in, in a Christian nation, it goes through the Vatican, they commission a, a, a crusade. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't really, it doesn't sit well at first, there's not really much, you know, assistance coming from from there. The Hungarians, the Polish, the Bohemians, Wallachians, they have no chance of helping. They're still recovering from Varna. And uh, Venice, who is also a potential ally that will help them, they actually consider breaking their peace treaty with the Ottoman Empire to assist the Byzantine Empire. And mm-hmm. they disputed for several months. And in February of uh, 1452, uh, about two or three months prior to the siege beginning... They have a hundred plus war galleys that they're gonna send laden with troops and supplies to break the naval blockade and also to get troops into Constantinople, but they keep right. you know, there's like a bureaucratic, you know, some some something that's happening that's forcing them to to wait, and they end up waiting till April, and then by that time the siege has already happened, and it really doesn't, you know, doesn't. They don't, they don't arrive in enough time. If they were a little bit quicker, they could have arrived. So they don't get much support from anywhere, but, but, from Genoa, with the, right. probably the coolest guy in this whole story, which is Giovanni Justiniani. Great name too. Yes. Ten out of ten. And
1: and Genoa is just a city state. Mm-hmm. It's not even an empire, yeah. and all the pretty much everything so giovanni justiniani he's pretty much the only person that organizes it he funds this entire this entire force by himself but it's only you know about 700 troops and a few ships but he funds it himself
0: yeah and he's he's kind of like a you know a warrior fortune he's going there because he thinks that if he were successful in defending Constantinople, he would get vast swaths of land because they'd be defeating the Ottoman Empire. They might be able to retake mm-hmm. their their previous lands that have been taken from the Ottomans. And he sees it as like an opportunity. And he's also a very, very veteran warrior. He's a, he's been a mercenary for several years and he's right. led so many battles. So he's he's a really good person to have because when he comes in, he immediately takes control of pretty much the entirety of the defense of uh. the the western northern walls of
1: right yeah emperor constantine places him in charge of the land defenses of the fortress yeah and yeah so this is the you know an outsider from the city-state of genoa and he comes in with you know a small contingency of troops but then the emperor places him in charge of the entire land defenses
0: yeah and he does a pretty good job of it i mean i guess we don't want to jump the gun but he does a pretty good job of it
1: but I guess there's not much other option because Constantinople, the fortress itself, only has maybe six to seven thousand trained soldiers as part of the garrison, and then, you know, thirty to thirty five thousand armed civilians, but they don't have really, you know, any military training, so they're not gonna be super effective in battle, but and, and they're gonna be, you know, pretty quick to to rout if they don't have good leadership. So I think Emperor Constantine recognizes that he has to and steal pretty good leadership and morale into his citizens if they're going to survive this. Oh, yeah. And also, I guess I should throw this in there. The the
0: Pope doesn't completely abandon uh, Constantinople. He still sees, you know, the Ottomans as like the greatest threat to Christianity. So he's he's still trying to help them, but they're not as financially uh, well off as they had been. The Vatican, that is, because they just launched a crusade and that had failed. But they do send a cardinal named Isidore. Uh, with two hundred archers that they fund the a small little tiny crusade to help Constantinople. so there is there is some assistance coming from the the Catholic
1: Church, right. yeah, but so they get you know less than a thousand or so troops to come and help them. Meanwhile, the Ottoman forces have sixty thousand to eighty thousand land troops that are marching towards Constantinople. They have seventy cannons you know some of the the Orban mortars that are absolutely massive they have this massive naval fleet with 140 or so ships that are that's rowing up towards constantinople so it's it's definitely a big number advantage for the ottoman empire but constantinople is the impermeable fortress yeah
0: yeah and uh the 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 one thing that we have to preface this with because we've done we've done this in the previous the battles too but it was an impenetrable fortress because they all view everyone at least at that time period viewed Constantinople as the greatest most powerful fortification in the world but this was right in the transitional period from typical medieval combat typical medieval sieges which involved you know water blockades land blockades mm-hmm. starvation sieges they would use uh, you know, siege towers. They would use ladders. They they'd sap walls. Those were all the tactics that were employed to get through a wall to get into a city. But now the Ottomans, who have been just blitzkrieging through the the entirety of Europe and the entirety of of Asia, they're employing completely different tactic, which is artillery. Right. So these walls mm-hmm. were constructed for for ancient siege techniques, but they haven't really faced up against cannon fire, like constant artillery fire. And that's, that's the really the the thing that Mehmed knows that he needs to take advantage of, like, you know, commissioning the largest cannon that they had ever seen and, and having 70 cannons at his disposal. And that's exactly what he does.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, Mehmed has a very solid plan. His plan is to blockade the city with his naval force so they can't receive any aid or supplies and then just attack the walls with the, his artillery until they break and then they can go and capture Constantinople. It seems, you know, pretty pretty straight cut and straightforward on paper.
0: Yeah. And and the the craziest thing about this is when I was reading about it is the cannons shot constant artillery fire on the walls for nearly sixty days straight. There was there was a mm-hmm. few pauses and halts when they would let like sorties that had wounded troops go get their troops or when they were to go get their own troops that were injured in the in the battle. But they shot the cannons, like, just the sheer amount of, of cannonballs you'd need in yeah. gunpowder to fire a non-stop stream of artillery onto a wall for 60 days throughout the night, constant. And, uh, Oof. yeah, that's because he he, yeah. he put basically all of his eggs into one basket, because he wanted to make a gigantic fracture in both of the walls that would let his Janissaries just go through uncontested. and. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of background in on this one. This is a pretty, is. you know, this is a dense battle. So we're gonna. I think we'll probably start the siege now. We'll start talking about it, and it starts off with a bang. Oh, doesn't <laughs> Oh gosh, <laughs> I'm sorry for that one. <laughs> but yeah. So April 6th, Mehmed II has all of his forces assembled outside of Constantinople, and they start the artillery barrage with all the cannons. And this, you know, it's the first day of the siege and first time using the cannons in Constantinople and they actually destroy a portion of the wall. And then what
0: happens? Yeah, well, so the the strategy that Giovanni Justiniani was employing was that if a wall were to break, he would either lead a sortie out to contest the potential raiding party or potential invasion party. And while that was occurring he was going to have troops repairing the wall with the rubble from that had fallen from the wall. And you mm-hmm. see this multiple times in that same day where they keep fracturing the wall continually over and over again. And then Giovanni launches a, a sortie out to try to halt the progress to maybe keep them at bay long enough while there's troops rebuilding portions of the wall.
1: Right. And then we I want to put in that the Ottoman ground troops That are leading these ground assaults are not the elite Janissaries at this time. They're just Rumilian forces that aren't as well trained and as well equipped as the Janissaries. So they're just kind of, you know, run of the mill infantry troops that Mehmed's sending in to try to, you know, test the defenses.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so, hey, that can be argued why it goes so well for the first few days with Giovanni is that, yeah, they're not fighting the elite. They're fighting these light infantry soldiers that don't pose much of a threat to these hard trained mercenary, Genoan mercenaries, right? So, yeah, yeah, that's. But I don't know.
1: I think Giovanni, you know, can't discredit him. He's doing such a good job. And not only is he repelling the Ottoman forces and building the wall, but he's also able to keep all of these, you know, the Greeks. Uh, that are there the Genoans the Venetians that are there and the citizens of the Byzantine empire that are in Constantinople he's able to keep the whole motley crew cohesive and their morale high enough to stand their ground as like could you imagine being on this wall looking out at a sea of 60 to 80,000 Ottoman forces and just hearing endless cannon fire I mean it would be very hard to keep your spirits high, but he does a very good job of that. That's true. He does. He can't knock Giovanni,
0: just Diniani. Again, I'm gonna try to say his name as many times (laughs) as possible during this. Yep.
1: yep. It's a great
0: name. (laughs) Yeah, so then for for a period of about five to six days, the same process keeps occurring over and over and over again. The the Outside wall, the exterior wall, keeps being fractured on multiple locations. At one time, one of the gates collapses where Constantine is is holding, but they're not able to really get troops in. And multiple times, the southern portion of the wall, or the southern portion of the land wall, it, it fractures. And it's just a, this continuous process of Giovanni leading troops out with like this ragtag band of maybe 600 troops fighting yep. these light infantry while these, these guys in, inside, probably citizens or, or, or military troops, are repeal, rebuilding the wall over and over and over again. So about five to six days in, the entire land wall between the, the towers, it's just rubble. But the rubble has been <laughs> prepared to the point where it's still a wall, right? And, and, this is interesting. I found this super interesting. Uh, There's actually an argument that the rubble... Walls were more effective than the actual standing walls because when you have a bunch of bricks laid on top of each other in like you know a pyramid or in a large stack, a cannonball hitting it, it's able to absorb uh, the impact way yeah. better. So there's less damage each time the cannons fire. The more rubble it compounds, but then of course right. you kind it of, just doesn't look as yeah nice. doesn't look as nice. <laughs> also, it kind of is easier to clear out and get troops through the you know, giant tin. Fifteen meter tall mm-hmm. wall, but yeah, that goes right. on for a while.
1: About a yeah, week. and so as this whole cannon barrage is happening, Mehmed is also pressuring his naval commander, and his naval commander is Talglu Sulame Bay. So, as we covered a while ago, a bay in the Ottoman Empire is kind of like a governor of an area. So, Batalgulu is the naval commander of the Ottoman forces, and so Mehmed is really trying to pressure him to capture the Golden Horn, to break through the Great Chain, and capture the Golden Horn with the Ottoman naval fleet, since Mehmed believed that this was, you know, a big key to victory, because if they get to the weaker seawalls on the other side of Constantinople and start shooting those with their cannon and breaking those, they would have a much easier time of getting into Constantinople and capturing the city. Yeah. But... The Byzantine forces in Constantinople had a navy of their own. It was really kind of a hodgepodge of a couple of large merchant vessels and uh, some other, you know, 20 or so other small ships. But the large merchant vessels are a lot bigger and a lot taller than the Ottoman war galleys. And so the naval commander in, of Constantinople is this guy, Lucas Notoris, and he's, he's the Megadou the grand duke and the commander of the byzantine navy and so his strategy was he was positioning these 10 or so large merchant ships kind of in front right at the right at the entrance where the great chain chain was and they were kind of protecting the great chain and keeping or keeping the ottoman navy at bay and it was actually working pretty well because these merchant ships were manned by pretty well trained sailors that had seeing their fair share of naval battles with pirates or so be. So they knew they were experienced and they knew how to, you know, fight on a ship. Meanwhile, the Ottoman Navy is led by a lot worse trained soldiers and, you know, pretty much some Christian slaves too.
0: Yeah, you can say that Bay was kept at Bay. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, like like Clay brought up, the, the Byzantine Empire, you know, you don't really think of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, as being like a an ocean-faring people. But since the Byzantines were mostly getting all of their finances through trade, they had a lot of, like, uh, you know, Venice and Rhodes and, and Genoa, those were all their trading partners. They actually are a pretty, pretty naval-heavy empire like if you wanted to look at their military forces and compared the 5 to 6000 troops they had to their navy they probably had a stronger navy so yeah they the the ottomans kind of had a, a a short short end of the stick they had to go against this force that was already in a well defended harbor they had to get past this gargantuan chain that would just tear the hole off of a boat in a second mm-hmm. and then they're also not as well trained cuz also like Clay said you know this naval force had been put together very quickly they didn't really have you know a big focus on on military strength in the ocean they had a military strength on land and artillery that's what they focused on so there wasn't really much you know training or or or, um understanding of how to fight that's a good
1: point this yeah this was the ottoman empire's first navy in you know some decades so even though they had a lot of ships they weren't really well trained but Anyways, after, you know, enough pressuring from Ahmed, Bataloglu on April 17th or 18th is trying to use the whole naval force to capture the the Golden Horn and break through this, this Byzantine naval blockade. And so this is, you know, the first real naval battle of the new Ottoman fleet. And I want to go into it a little bit, but... Um, before that, I think there's also a land uh, assault going on. Do you have anything to say about that?
0: Uh, basically the same thing that's been happening. Right. I think this one was a little bit more intensive. They, they planned to actually make it through the wall, but there's the, several accounts say that there was like, you know, there's some fierce fighting on the interior of the, the first wall, like with the killing field. But they once again retreat. They go back to, to the main encampment because they can't get through. They don't have enough damage to the second wall.
1: Yeah, so this is, you know, 10 days or so after the siege originally started and Mehmed's launching this two-pronged attack from sea and from land to pretty much try to take Constantinople here. But Giovanni Giustiniani, as as awesome as he is, right. is able to or repel the Ottoman land forces once again. And then we have Valtaloglu, leading the Ottoman naval fleet. And so they're rushing towards the Great Chain of the Golden Horn. And in preparation, they loaded some small cannons onto the Ottoman galleys, but as I covered before, these Ottoman warships aren't super large and are really prone to taking on water, so they can't load you know the, the best cannons they have. So the cannons they have on the ship are too small to really inflict damage to these really well-constructed larger merchant vessels. So their cannons are ineffective here and the merchant fleet that are guarding Constantinople have a significant height advantage. So they can just stand, you know, on their height, their tall ships and just shoot down onto the war galleys of the Ottomans. You know, the rowers are exposed so they can just start picking them off from these ships. And these well-trained merchant seamen are experienced in this kind of battle. And so, um, Baltaloglu realizes that his best chance is to just rush and board the merchant vessels and engage to hand-to-hand combat. But so these merchant vessels, they had a pretty good defense for the Ottoman war- warships trying to grab onto the ships and board them. They had these large, simple rope hoists that were tied around these big boulders that were tied to the mast of the ship that they could just release down the side of the boat, and it would just swing and crush all of the smaller Ottoman ships that are down in the water. And so this actually was pretty effective. And Bataloglu, the Ottoman naval commander, had suffered such heavy losses that he was fearful of losing, you know, his entire naval force and he orders a retreat. And so this is like a really big major blunder on his part. He had, you know, so many numbers advantage and everything, but he's failed to really do anything. And he's actually removed from his post by Mehmed II because it's just such a big mistake in Mehmed's eyes. So Batalglu, the naval leader of the Ottoman force, is just basically fired for doing such a poor job trying to capture the Golden Horn.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, speaking of the the double the double entendre move that Mehmed pulls, it's actually, I mean, I didn't, I, I should have brought it up when I was talking about the, the land attack, but uh, it was actually a pretty clever uh Attempt because what he was trying to do was because the the strategy Giovanni or um, Giovanni Giustiniani he he pulls for the majority of the siege is he's got almost all of the forces dedicated to the land wall right because he doesn't see that the the western wall there's no way they can really launch a siege from there there's no point it's just coastal right western and, and southern part of the the wall and then the Golden Horn's so well defended, he, doesn't, he has a small contingent of troops defending that wall, but he, he doesn't have that many. So what Mehmed was trying to do was he was trying to pull all the troops off of the wall that could maybe potentially cause some damage to the Ottoman fleet, mm-hmm. so they'd be completely uncontested. But this is pretty funny. Orhan, the guy who was a hostage of Constantinople, he was staffed with being like the anchor to the, the seawall. So he's actually the one defending the seawall while this naval battle's happening. They don't really uh-huh. do anything. There's they don't they don't contribute because there's not really any way to contribute in a naval battle when you're sitting sure. on top of a wall. But I just think that's 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 funny enough. He's he's like the, the last holdout of the wall or on the, the potential yeah. threat to the Ottoman Empire.
1: <laughs> that is pretty funny. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, so you know, this this siege is going pretty well for Constantinople. They've had some pretty significant victories and repelling Mehmed and the Ottoman forces and I think this is probably where we're going to end it here and pick up we still you know have like a month left of the siege it's only April 17th or 18th where we're ending and it goes until late May Mm -hmm. so we definitely have more stuff coming up and to cover in the next episode it'll probably be more battle heavy this one was a lot of background and setting up yeah what was happening, which is very, you know, a lot of dense information here.
0: Yep, because of the context.
1: Yeah, I'm just glad that we had like kind of an actual naval battle that had some information on it.
0: Yeah, I'm surprised you found that. I was, I was. I remember now. I I saw some docu series a long time ago that did talk about that naval battle, but I couldn't find any information of, on the actual naval battle on the 17th.
1: Yeah, I found like one thing about it, or a couple, couple of sources, but. It seemed like pretty significant to me because if if the Ottomans capture the golden horn here, it's pretty much game over for Constantinople.
0: Yeah, and they just they get starved out. Because, you know, here, I guess this is the last thing I want to just bring up because every single previous siege, pretty much every single previous siege of Constantinople, the same thing happens where they have this like overwhelming odds against them. They're getting destroyed, mm-hmm. like their walls are getting destroyed. They're having constant attacks on from all sides. And what always happens is they just hold out long enough because it's so difficult to get through all of those fortifications. And then a a Christian force comes in and saves them. That's what usually happens. So in this instance, they probably have the same mentality. They probably think, oh, okay, there's the Vatican sending troops. They're going to be here. They're going to be. We just have to hold out. So it's not they're they're, they're like they're probably thinking that it's going about as well as it possibly could go because they're winning all of these these land battles and these naval battles i guess we just leave them there we'll leave them there in their their, their bliss ignorance
1: yep they survive for another day yes
0: all right well so check us out next week's when we conclude the siege of Constantinople. yeah thanks
1: for listening hi listeners we hope you're enjoying the podcast
0: and if you are make sure to follow us on all of our social medias
1: you can find our social medias in the description on our spotify page if you enjoyed what you heard make sure to check out our sister podcast gray skies Each week, the host Eliza talks about a different national disaster that happened in recent history. And hopefully we're gonna be able to collaborate with her. Yeah, so look forward to that.